HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. More than 6 million people visited the USA Pavilion at the Milan Expo this past year. What did they find out about American Food 2.0? Coming up on this episode of Tech Bites. Well, Happy New Year, Heritage Radio Network listeners. It is January 4th, 2016, and this is the first episode of Tech Bytes for the brand new year. I'm Jennifer Leutze, your host, and every Monday afternoon at 1 o'clock, we talk about the intersection of food and technology. Less kitchen cooking technology and more web digital app technology. Today, our in-studio guest is Mitchell Davis, who is back from a year in Milan. He is the Chief Creative Officer of the USA Pavilion at Expo Milan. He is also the Vice President of the James Beard Foundation and a host of the Heritage Radio Network show, Taste Matters. And a little-known fact, one of the reasons why I was inspired to want a show on Heritage Network. Wow. I'm glad it worked out. It's so fun to be in the other seat, I have to say. It's been a long time since I've been at Heritage Radio. Thank you for having me back. Is it more relaxing being in the other seat? I, I think, yeah, actually it is. <laughs> we'll see what your questions are like. Hot seat. Yeah. Also in studio today, we have, as always, in Mission Control, Jack Inslee, Heritage Radio Network's executive producer, the engineer for this show, DJ, host of Full Service Radio and Gunwash on Thursday night. Wow. Is that it? <laughs> That's it. That's it for now. We'll see what next week brings. Did you add anything new for 2016? I think you need more goals, Jack. Yeah, true. I do. I added a lot of apps to my phone for 2016. <laughs> I, I got to be ready for the show, you know? 
<laughs> so that's a perfect lead into yes. every week we start the show like a good meal with an app and we go around the studio and we talk about apps that we like love maybe i'm waiting for the person who's going to talk about the app they want to be invented mm. but jackson she said you just loaded up your new phone what do you got all right so um my resolution is budget this year uh, mm-hmm. across the board so there's a wonderful app that i'm sure many listeners have heard of um and i tried to use once unsuccessfully but i'm back on it it's called mint and basically what it is is a, a budgeting tool and a financial tool where you kind of connect it to all your different accounts and um it sort of reads and organizes your transactions and you can create budgets for yourself it'll let you know when you're nearing you know that budget in each category so for example mine's reading right now there's gas and fuel internet mobile phone student loan food and dining health and fitness all that sort of stuff um so this is a great way to get a snapshot of kind of what you're actually spending your money on and it was interesting to look at my six month snapshot of what I had been spending money on and it was a little alarming. <laughs> How much did you spend on donuts? Well and breakfast they get pastry. Their own category? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, I did not go that deep. I didn't break it down into pastries versus other food. But food and dining was certainly far and away the biggest expense uh, other than, than rent and, and bills and stuff. So try to trim down on that a little bit, cook at home more. So I've seen a bunch of the apps like that in terms of keeping track of your finances with the aim of saving money or paying down debt. And Mint is definitely one of the ones that you read about quite frequently. They freak me out a little bit because you connect it to all of your financial accounts. Does that worry you at all? Um, no. You know, like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Someone steals your identity and takes all your donut money? <laughs> I, I That'd be pretty bad. That'd be pretty bad. <laughs> the banks are pretty good, though, about fraud detection, and, you know, you can file a complaint should anything go wrong. I, so I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. Okay. Well, let us know how that goes. Do you have a... Are you saving up for something? A new... Yes. A new piece I'm, of DJ equipment, I'm a vacation. Up to pay off my debt. I mean, uh, that's really it, you know. Yeah. Kind of knock that down this year. Welcome to America. Yep. <laughs> Mitchell, do you have an app that you like a lot now? I do. And in fact, it's funny to be asked because I was making good on my New Year's resolution to get more out of my Evernote. Oh. Evernote is an app that I have been using for years, but don't even think I know half of what it does. And every year I try to add something. And while I was away, in Milan, I kind of used it for everything. And uh, so I was just, before I got here, unexpecting this question, I, I um, was looking at things I can do <laughs> with my app. Evernote's a good one. It's yeah. a really good productivity app. Do you share it with other people and use it to collaborate, or is it no, just personal? I haven't. Yeah, every time I try, they don't have it. People are annoyed. But I, it's for me, it's actually become a really big recipe box. Oh. I, clip, I web clip everything I see. I've been cooking a lot over the holidays, as you know, firsthand. <laughs> and uh, I have, it's all gone in straight into Evernote where I can sort of flip through and check the ingredients and stuff. Like, I'm loving that part. So I'm, I, I also just trying to figure out what, what else I can do with it. That, that I hate apps that require you to do more. I mean, budgeting is one thing, of course. That, that's something we avoid doing, and anything that can help um, do that is great. But, you know, when, when it says it's going to help your life, but it requires you to do more, I hate right. that. So Evernote's pretty great. You should. I, I my first encounter with Evernote was doing work with different startup companies, and they really liked using Evernote as collaborative projects. Yeah. And the fact that it can be native on your phone and not necessarily have to have Wi-Fi was very sure. helpful. 
Um, and it also because it's email agnostic. A lot of people like using G Drive and the Google Docs, but you need to sort of be in that platform yeah. for it to be really useful. Well, at, at our at the office, we use Basecamp, which is a, okay. a yep. project tool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe one day I'll convert them over. I don't know, but I kind of like it as my own personal stuff. I, I don't do too much business, and it, it's just where I'm trying to go paperless in my life. Does it help you because you travel so much? Yeah, uh, you know, it helps me because I like to just. I don't want stuff, but I want to keep the information. And I'm not a good. I'm, I take copious notes when I do anything, and I never look at them again. But it's nice <laughs> to know I can in Evernote, as opposed to throwing out the notebooks. Like I just, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I'll report back next year and see how what, okay. what I added this year. Well, good luck. Sounds like everybody's apps are resolution driven. Yeah, right. Which, they are. Um, mine isn't exactly revolution resolution driven. I, I don't really make resolutions. Um, I like to have sort of overarching themes for the year, like be more generous or be more Mm -hmm. social or that kind of thing. But my app this week is Overdrive. And Overdrive is an app that you can download onto pretty much any mobile device and also your computer. And it syncs you with your public library account. So the New York City Public Library, I am a huge fan of um, and have been for a couple years now. I like to... You can use your account digitally you can mm-hmm. save a reading list you can comment you can pull books on put books on hold you can extend their deadlines but you can also download audiobooks and ebooks mm-hmm. and overdrive is the platform that they subscribe to and most public libraries in the country mm-hmm. subscribe to versus creating their own app or system so it's really useful it's really great and i try to read all my books in paper mm-hmm. instead of being digital because while I love technology, I try and spend <laughs> not all my time on it. Mm. Um, it's really helpful, and the audiobooks are great too. I have to check it out, though I haven't read a book in paper for a really long time. I, in fact, I get sent books in paper and then order them online so I can take them with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might want to investigate a New York City public library card which you can get digital books and you can just download them like that and then the thing that's amazing is miraculously after three weeks they just disappear from your <laughs> reading list which Funny. is kind of wild Yeah. so Overdrive so Mitchell Davis a lot, a lot of business cards and, and footers to his email has spent the last two years basically mm-hmm. in Milan at the USA Pavilion so Expo Milano is the world's fair they changed right. World's Fair name to Expo. Well, I think we actually changed it. Americans changed it to World's Fair. It was always Expo. Oh. But we used well, World's Fair. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Our uh, yeah, independent um, ways. So the theme for Expo Milano was Feeding the Planet, Energy for Life. And it basically centered around sort of the basic human right to have healthy, sufficient, and a secure food source. And then the theme of the U.S. A pavilion was American Food 2.0. So if you're really interested in kind of getting more into it, there was a great five-part series on Heritage Radio Network about the pavilion, um, which sort of went from building it to the different expressions of the different programming, Food Truck Nation, all that kind of stuff. We know more than six million people visited the USA Pavilion, which is staggering. Mm -hmm. What did they learn and see? Mm. Like it was an it was an amazing and it was an the amazing event. Yeah, go you learn you eat you see. Did it come close to coming to some solutions for sufficient, mm. secure, healthy food for the world? Or 
Hard to say, um, and Im- almost impossible to say what people took away. I mean, you know, what do people listening to this radio station get? You know, did they get what you give? Right. Um, uh, and the World's Fair, you know, as you said, it's been going on forever, since 1851, actually. The first one was held in London, and and they are big fairs. You know, they're like, they're like a combination... State Fair, Disney World, uh, Epcot Center, and then this one had the very strongly articulated theme of feeding the planet and how, as a global community, will we do that? And that's how I got involved. I was on loan from the James Beard Foundation to an organization that planned the pavilion that we that I helped set up. And, um, and the, our whole point there, as you said, was to give people a quote-unquote taste of American food, by which we meant both literally in food trucks and in a restaurant we ran in the city that had uh, chefs coming, like much like they come to the Beard House, but coming to Milan to cook, um, but then also um, insight into what's going on in food thought and food system stuff, things like Heritage Radio and, and all sorts of the incredible dynamic food thing we have going on, because mostly what gets exported are the giant food companies and the brands that are as popular everywhere as they are here, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, et cetera, et cetera. And they certainly had a presence at the um, World's Fair in Milan. But um, but we wanted to literally show them some of the other stuff. That's why we called it 2.0, American Food 2.0, the things you don't expect. And it, to the extent that I think people might have expected one thing at the American Pavilion, maybe a giant hamburger to, you walk through into a vat of you know ketchup that and a slide that of, on a potato chip flume. And we talked about that because that's one <laughs> way to do a, to do a World's Fair. But we had a very quite a serious pavilion. We we had experts from all over, many of whom have been on this radio station, um, videotape talking about different aspects from their perspective about what global food security is and what America's unique perspective can be. We had programming every day. We ran a food and technology accelerator for the month of um, August and September, where we had 10 companies from the United States and around the world um, on site for the month of September, sort of engaging with people, looking at future solution, technology-based solutions to some of the large global system problems. And so, so I mean, at the very least, I think what might have been the aha moment for people was it wasn't a giant um, french fry, let's say, or a giant hot dog. Um, although we learned early on that you can't have an American pavilion at a World's Fair in another country and not have those things because that's what people also love about America, the hot dogs <laughs> and french fries and burgers and Coca-Cola and Pepsi. I should say Pepsi when I refer to it because they were a sponsor of our pavilion. PepsiCo being both, obviously, a global food um, company, you know, purveyor of sodas and hummus and chips um, and many other things, but Quaker Oats, but also um, also one of the large global companies who at least is trying to figure out a way to exist in a future that is less sure, where nutrition and and quality of food and environmental issues are a major concern. And so, so uh, you know, uh, the answer is I don't know what they got, but I do think that they were surprised, and I think that our the popularity, the six point two million visitors, whereas um, some of the other pavilions were like Germany and Japan, which had an eight hour wait to get in the Japanese pavilion, but they were much more like Epcot Disney a little bit, fun rides, wow, Zoom. We didn't have any of that. We didn't have the budget, we didn't have the time. So so the fact that so many people came, I think, is a testament that they got they they were surprised by what America was presenting. Is the starting point for anything really just people being aware and curious and going and, and having new information and maybe just showing them something that was surprising is enough to be, you know, a very small you know, I, 
pebble that drops into the pond that creates the ripples? I think I think so. I think it, in that environment, it has to be. You can't you can't teach six million people anything in the twenty minutes you might have their attention. Probably not. You have it for your attention for two minutes. The rest of it, they're trying to find the bathroom or the way out. Um, so yeah, I think so. And I I'm of the perspective that Expo was a huge success in that way overall because many people coming had no interest in the food piece. They were just coming to the World's Fair, and the World's Fair happens and it's fun, and you bring your family because it's happening in your country or your city, and. Um, and I think that that's, that's what you can hope for. It's just an aha of anything. And then we'll see, actually, if it was a success, both our pavilion and the whole endeavor, five years from now, 10 years from now. It's certainly 25 million or 22 million people came through in the end. And, and you cannot have left Expo, even if you weren't interested at all in the subject, without learning something or being awakened to something regarding food and the food system and food culture. And I think that makes it a success. Well, definitely having exposure to that many people. You can't not see that many people without having it be successful, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, that's a, a staggering number to me, 6.2 million people. There, that's a lot of people. There were days. I mean, you were there on one of those days, actually, yep. when it was a scary number of people. Like Because we would work in the pavilion in a, in a quiet place, a small office or whatever, um, or a boardroom where, where that was restricted area. And you'd come down the escalator, and it would just be swarms of people, like waves, amazing number of people. The, the first time that we, we we almost never had a line, which is one of the reasons we um, actually, which I, I think is interesting from a technology standpoint, because because the, you you deal with people the way you deal with the flow of infor, of water or information. You know, it's like pipelines, big, smaller, smaller, and you're trying to constantly um, sift so that there's no blockages or, or, you know, I always think of the New York City subways where they have three wide stairs and it all comes down to one and you think, why did they bother with the three in the first place? We're just going to gonna have to wait up there. Down. It's like merging yeah. lanes on the highway. Exactly. The same thing and it's all sort of water dynamics is what they use as the metaphor anyway um i think that <coughs> excuse me um that number of of people participating in an event is also a little bit like enough to shake a planet out of its orbit you know like like there will be a reference point for those people the same way you hear people talk about the 64 world's fair or even the 39 world's fair in new york that were s- sort of historic touch points uh, for a lot of people um, that still resonate 50 80 years later um, in fact the history of that had much to do with how we participated in this one, going back to to Europe, bringing American food the other way, as opposed to them bringing French food to, right. to New York, going back with American food. for the first time. Exactly. Belgian waffles in 64, yep. 39, the French restaurant at the Pavilion. Um, so, so, we, so I think there was a cultural moment. It, the timing was right. The idea was good. Italy was a great place to do it. And I, I think that we will see that pebble ripple for quite some time. And looking forward... When we come back after, we're going to stop and take a little break. When we come back, I'd love to hear more about the time capsule because that is very fascinating to me. Also, what you preserve today for people to look at tomorrow. Sure. But before we get there, we're going to hear from our sponsor, Cheese Cupid from the Wisconsin Cheese Board, which is a cheese pairing app, which is pretty fun, actually. And it talks and all of the wines and cheeses have these really fun audio personalities so definitely download it and check it out we're going to listen to some music and we'll be back after the break this is a new band for the network it's called Zuli, and the track is called keeping it together we will be right back
Today's program was brought to you by the Wisconsin Cheese Cupid Pairing app, available on Android and Apple devices. Still paying attention? Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything a dollar two dollars ten dollars a hundred dollars a thousand dollars i don't know who you are or what you can contribute but anything counts and trust me we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations so consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org click on that little beating heart the donate button and show us you care thanks for listening i hope you enjoy the rest of the show Well, if you're wondering what you just clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. Today in studio, we have Mitchell Davis, who is here back from Milan as the chief creative officer of the USA Pavilion, where they house had 6.2 million visitors come through to take a look at American Food 2.0, which mm-hmm. I still kind of can't wrap my head around, <laughs> and I wasn't even the person who had to make it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I, I had never even been to a World's Fair before. Uh, had you been to Disney or Epcot or something uh, like that? Yeah, Epcot and Disney a while, long time ago, but... You don't really know, you know, we were on a mission to, to do food. And, and to also, I mean, the technology piece, so many of the countries, there were 147 countries participating, and so many of them uh, worked uh, a technology offering, both because it's cool when you go to a pavilion and you see something fun happen. Japan had these great um, images of food on a tower um, that you put your uh, smartphone into a slot and you could pull, drag the images of food into your phone and it would give you the recipe in your language somehow on your phone like there were there was really neat integration of stuff and the german pavilion had these little books a menu that you held under it was it was your personality as you went through the pavilion you held it under um, a projector and it read who you were and then gave you your uh, story about what you were looking at right then sort of in your language or in a few languages and all those sorts of things that were fun and had we had enough money and time um, because we were late to coming as a whole history we don't need to talk about but um, uh, we would have loved to do but in the end we had a very high tech pavilion because it took so much to produce it but you didn't the, the experience was just walking through as though you were almost in a forest or a mall like a forest in a mall I think with towers and plants and things the technology was all behind the scenes Well, technology also really empowered people to, I think, experience it in ways that you couldn't in the past. You know, you had a very, the Instagram feeds, the apps, the websites, the blogs, the updates, you know, the millions and millions of posts of people who went through and, and took pictures and shared it. So that's also kind of really fascinating to me that the shared experience through social media and with video, words, pictures and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
And one of the things that I learned about through the USA Pavilion Instagram feed was the time capsule. Mm. And the time capsule to me is a really interesting concept because having the history and having the history and the experience of looking back as you were saying earlier of what things resonate and then were truly impactful did that was was that part of the inspiration for the time capsule uh, there were a couple of things i mean it quite to be totally honest it was a late inspiration and and part of it had to do with um um what do we? No one wanted this thing to end. There was too much effort, too much money, still money to raise, too much effort to have it just disappear after six months. Which, by law, the expo goes away. Uh, it, there's an international body. It's all sorts of treaties. They're beyond change, and so we didn't want to uh, this conversation to end. Obviously, no one did. The expo people don't. Whatever. And so, the idea of the time capsule also spoke to this historical resonance of expos. And you know, what was the world like in '64? Your first taste of a Belgian waffle or go back to 39 and your first foie gras or sort of grand French cuisine Um, and how do you preserve not just the artifacts which the Smithsonian does or other places do but actually that that the content, the the programming, the experience. And so we ca- came up with this idea, actually my colleague Dorothy Hamilton, who also is a, is a feature on this radio station, uh, of creating a time capsule that we would propose to open 50 years from this expo at, a, at that World's Fair, where one can only imagine, you know, what the world will be like. And I'll just give you an example of time, because everyone made a big deal of the 1964 World's Fair was the first time that I think it was... Um, AT&T or whatever the company would have been, a Bell company, then um, demonstrated a video phone, this idea for a video phone. And they were these big phones. You know, we were in the analog days and and someone could talk across the way. Um, but it took 50 years for us to all have video in our pockets and these little computers. And so even though it's not a straight trajectory from a World's Fair to that video phone, like that's, you can sort of measure time in some of these changes, I think. Um, so, you know, even just thinking for 10 seconds, what 50 years from now food will be, technology will be, will we even be able to read our own our own um, time capsule right. documents? I, who knows? Are you, know? you, are you preserving the technology to access? Also? Yeah. Uh, one, one well, of the first episodes we did last year on Tech Bytes was about digital archiving and archiving for the future, sort of how not only do you have to preserve the item itself, but you also have to preserve the technology to, to access right, it. Right. And so will will I, smartphones be like eight track tapes, vinyl? I don't know. And then Beta. and then there's the challenge in the food space, I think, which has never really been successfully um, solved of of how do you preserve food? That you can't really the sensory part of food, um, which, you know, baffles historians as much as working in the past centuries as it will in the future. And like, what were those experiences like? What did the the cream and flour and things taste like? And and recipes are the closest approximation. But but when I even look at recipes like James Beard's recipes, um, because I, you know, I'm at the Beard Foundation and it's a surprise for me sometimes and people you talk to about how much how we eat has changed the ways we eat has changed we we don't cook with extra sticks of butter like we don't say you know here's a stick of butter and butter that bread for a sandwich because we know more about nutrition and food and and those sorts of things and so you know even though we don't necessarily notice how much our food changes it actually changes quite a bit from our grandparents and and before then so 50 years ahead when i mean nobody ate kale and quinoa and all those things just five years ago or 10 
10 years ago. <laughs> Who knows what it'll be like? And, and um, so thinking about that, and part of the whole experience of working at a World's Fair, I think... With, when you add the multicultural component is that's the fun that's where it gets to be creative and and almost like um, sort of you know wizard behind the curtain playing because you just get to guess and pick one and run with it what was your biggest surprise in terms of what the public who visited what your visitors thought what was your biggest surprise in terms of the thing that people absolutely loved mm. and your biggest surprise in the things that people well I didn't f- like or didn't resonate or wasn't I think the it's so there's so many ways to answer that question it's there's a you know you're trying to put on a show for an audience that may or may not come with with an expectation and if they do it's certainly not the one that you have and so when we were sitting together originally thinking about how to present an American pavilion you want to do all these things that you know about happening now but the reality is most people in America don't even know they're happening right. necessarily and then forget about it outside America and so you have to meet your audience in the middle um, I, I think to me two things stand out as shockers really one of them is how um, how powerful we are in setting cultural trends, um, and I know we'd say that, and you know you know that movies are popular, and you think that, but uh, and even American music, but here we were in Italy, and I think one of the reasons we were such a busy pavilion is everybody wants to see what's happening in America. America is the place, it's sort of the future for the world, especially in Europe. You know, the like old world, new world are just names, but they actually, I think, are persistent metaphors for um, sort of the day-to-day lived experience. To your, to your point, as America being a leader, there's a very old, beautiful department store in Paris called Bon Marché, which is on the mm-hmm. left bank and every year at Christmas they decorate the store and it has a theme and they do beautiful catalogs and everything and this past Christmas the theme was Brooklyn <laughs> isn't that amazing and uh, the whole theme in this amazing Parisian yes. department store which you know at some point themes would be you know Versailles or you know gorgeous things was Brooklyn right and and to me like there's so many things in that reality that you know a, that is our influence but it's also um, you know the future isn't always prized like America may have existed, but it may not have been chic or may not have right. been worthy of window displays in Paris. But so that has changed. The hierarchy of culture has mm-hmm. changed. And then also the fact I love is that Brooklyn has sort of usurped New York City, which used to equal Manhattan as the brand, as the global brand. You see Brooklyn things in all over Brooklyn Tokyo. Made. You see. Yeah. So Bushwick fascinating. Pride. Yeah. So that, but I have to say the experience that, that was just profound, how much, how important it is. And I think it's a combination of two things. Because, because, because of our lack of tradition, or, our, or I, I mean, we don't. It's not a lack of tradition, and it isn't even a it's disrespect. A, it's of, a diversity of tradition, a diversity, and also a willingness to let them go, or to flout them, or just do whatever we want. We take that for granted, but it's very American, I think. And uh, and then also, you know, whereas we used to sort of dominate in different forms of culture in the 20th century, um, technology, I think, um, has kept us the place where the future is. You know, the pervasiveness uh, of American tech companies, whether it's Apple or Google or, you know, even less known but important. And certainly there are other tech areas and China's big and Germany and Israel have big tech fields. But partly because of the weight of of the bureaucracy of these places in Europe, especially America is the future right now. And so um, I think that's 
that's part of what happened. And then I, the other surprise to me also was related to that, just how open everybody was to us being there. And that might not have been true if we were not in Italy and say we were, I don't know, in some other country where we've had more uh, checkered past. But, but the relationship between Italy and the United States just meant everyone was coming to the American Pavilion um, sort of happily, let's say, rather than skeptically, um, even vis-a-vis food. And so I think that that part was a bit of a surprise. Well, when you talk about the style or the cool factor or things that are cultural, that's really sort of the heart. And then technology is very much the mind. It's very intellectual. And I think that shows that American culture and the American point of view does resonate so strongly because it captures those two pieces. It's sort of left brain and right brain at the same time. And when you have the two of them together, it's kind of hard to deny because not only do people want to see the technology or have it or follow it, the iPhone and all those types of things, but they also want to wear cool American sneakers and yeah. listen to American music. It's it's almost like a totality of, of lifestyle. Well, and I think technology sort of writ large comes with a lifestyle attached also. Like even in other places that are um, show, you know, terrific technological prowess. Um, they're emulating sneaker-wearing, jean-wearing kids, you know, in offices with ping-pong tables. Like, it's become the ethos of that world and, and, you know, by extension, our world. And, you know, you can argue there are all sorts of good and bad things, but I actually think it's had a positive effect on food because certainly food fits into that lifestyle or, or quality, you know, ethically... Um, respectful food is part of that in some ways, except if you go the solvent, the uh, the Soylent direction, and then there's a non-food as part of it. But even that non-food is a reaction, I think, to an overemphasis on, like, the quality food of our of our time, which equals this tech time, I think. So from your point of view, when you're now had some time to, a small amount of time to look back and maybe unpack the experience a little bit, can you distill for us in you know a hand a half a dozen points or four <laughs> or five points of what people can think about going forward that are actionable in terms of American food 2.0 even if it's just aspirational even if it's just read a book or see a movie or compost or yeah. I mean I think being aware is is really the most important thing like being aware that you are eating something that has grown or lived or or been handled by people there's a connection in food that will never be digitized um, I think and so so to me I, I one thing I, I'll take a step aside for a second and and uh, you know everyone wants to know oh what is American food like that was a question asked a million times at Expo it was a question we ask ourselves at the James Beard Foundation it's you know like is there an American cuisine blah 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 and do and you, it's a question you say it's what we eat in America well basically <laughs> yes except that you can recognize things that feel American but yes I, I mean I think we need a good two hundred years till we have an answer if we ever have an answer to that question and partly I think it's because and you'll appreciate this it's a French question to begin with like what is cuisine presumes you've codified uh, an entire sort of body of information and people have a reference to refer to like these encyclopedias of France. Um, And so I don't think we're looking for that. So from the individual standpoint, what is American Food 2.0? I think we're living it. It's certainly sitting here in Roberta's. We're living in a time when it's hard to not 
n- not think about all of the things that brought that food to you, if you have any awareness at all, um, and whether you have an issue about labor, and we're seeing that in restaurants, and we're seeing that in farms, and we're seeing that in other places, or whether you're concerned about the environment, which is the big topic at the moment, you know, you can't you can't just separate these things out and think that they have no impact. And and these are issues that yes, they're thinking about in rarefied restaurants in Bushwick, but also um, in giant corporations. When you see, look at Chipotle versus McDonald's and McDonald's versus, um, I don't know, Cisco food suppliers and all these sorts of things. Like people are wrestling with the real implications. The largest food companies have the most to lose in a world where the environment isn't right and labor changes. And so in some ways, their scenario planning is more sophisticated about what they need to do to live and survive in those areas. And so I think on an individual basis... Here's, uh, it wasn't a New Year's resolution, but about a week ago I started compost, saving my scraps for composting. I'm actually uh, a guest on my show, Gabriella Gershenson, who I was with, said she did it. And I thought, why don't I do that? You know, like I should just, I save a lot of things, we recycle, but I've never, I cook a lot and there's a lot of waste. And so I set myself up to make it easy. Like I said, I like things to be easy to work into my day. And I think that, you know, it's a simple thing. Do I think that it's going to change the planet? I Probably not. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't. I try to tread lightly, but you know I live in New York City and and we do what we do. And so I think that on an individual level, being aware, um, understanding the connections, and and acting based on your awareness uh, is the most we could ever hope for. I, I think that trying to convert everybody into a foodie is a horrible idea. I can't. I would never want to live in a world where everyone cared as much as you or I do about food because it would just be unbearable in some ways, which doesn't mean that those of us who care can't make everyone's food better, but, but we have to talk about other things, right? Like you just can't. It, it's just not enough food. Let, let people be obsessed with art and comic books and whatever also. And so, so I just think on an individual basis, if you just know, do, act, be aware. I think it's, it's a lot to ask for, and it's probably enough. One of the reasons why I think it's so difficult to describe what American food is like is because it's also something that's always changing. Because as you have these groups of people who become more aware and start to do different things, what American food is changes. Sure. And, and that's time to time, and even not just in terms of the food that we import, that we become exposed to, that we adopt and love, like sushi, right. which 50 years ago was not something that you could buy at the drugstore right. in New York City. It changes, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say sometimes we make it better. Like tradition, just because something traditional doesn't mean it's good, for, which I've said forever, that doesn't means it has a whole history. But I was just learning about things, Korean foods invented in Los Angeles, um, sundubu, which is a type of soft chili um, stew that was invented in L.A. That's now a trend in Seoul. Our friends were just in Seoul, and uh, it's everywhere as this L.A. Korean thing. So like we, we sort of stigmatize that, that experiment but I, I think it's partly why Brooklyn is in the windows at Bon Marche. It's a, it is our unique thing. And I do think you're right that that constant openness to change makes it hard to codify, which is why the act of codifying is sort of a French idea in the first place, I think. Organi- organizing. Well, because yeah. it's very, it's a hierarchical structure and they need to sort of have yeah. the status of everything. And They do and it with well language. Organized. There's the Académie yeah. Française that says you can say, you know, baladeur, but you can't say Walkman. You know, like all those <laughs> sorts of things. <laughs> I do think that technology, specifically social media, has accelerated that process, though. Has accelerated yes. the process of what things are, what they mean to be, how quickly they change, change and go. And in, a, in an interesting way, it makes things 
last longer in some respects because once you put it out into the internet and the world and social media so many more people know about it it's out there forever until you take it down and there's a increasingly large boneyard out mm. there on the internet of stuff that people have posted and not forgotten but at the same time it's still there yeah. it's, it's all still it there it'll away. last forever right. but at the same time it's so instantaneous and it's gone in a blip that mm we see those cycles of things go much faster. Just this morning, I was listening to NPR, because I'm a radio fan of all kinds, and uh, they did a piece about the global internet archive, which has existed for 15 years, where they are trying to preserve every day hundreds of millions of web pages. Not everything, because that's impossible, but for posterity, the way that the Library of Congress has the books. I mean, it's, a, it's an international project. I missed the beginning, so I didn't get all the details. But exactly to your point, they have, they have nine, no, 500 million web pages, 500 billion web pages, not quite a trillion, and hundreds of millions of videos and things. And part of it's for posterity and academic research in the future and, and the way that you would have any archive. And part of it is also, as you say, because um, it doesn't really disappear, uh, but it also isn't saved. And so I, I was fascinated to know, and it's used a lot, apparently, for, for research and work. And, and to your point, you know, one hopes that we'll forever be able to at least access it you know, with whatever technology we have, because, because it is both... Um, ephemeral, ephemeral, but its pervasiveness makes things stick around because you can't pull it back. Like no. you can't pull anything back Once it's anymore. It's out there. It's yeah. out there. Yeah. Privacy on the internet is a myth. Wild, I tell that yeah. to people all the time. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting, though, is that because it cycles through so quickly, are there? I almost wonder sometimes if there aren't starting to be too many choices. Is there too much awareness? Is there too much discussion? Are we too concerned mm. about the list of 15 things that we will eat, won't eat between <laughs> all the different, you know, ideologies about what you should eat, both in terms of from a political point of view, from a religious and spiritual mm. point of view, from a health and nutrition point of view, from a green save the planet point of view. There's an increasing number of requirements, restrictions, categories of what people mm -hmm. should be eating, should not be eating. I almost yeah, I feel almost much, like we're reaching yeah. a, a, a pinnacle, a saturation of, of too much. Yeah. Well, there's certainly too much, and then there and then all everyone says is, "Well, you haven't learned anything new. It's always been the you know nutrition's always been the same." Or I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's too much, um, but I, you know, there used to be come in different forms, and I, I don't know anyone who doesn't read WebMD and think they have like seven uh, ailments that they read about. <laughs> you know, sure they've diagnosed themselves, and and yes, maybe that's harder for doctors, or uh, I don't know. I'm not someone who um, who romanticizes the past, really. I mean, like like yes, I I miss things that change, um, and I wish some things wouldn't, but I would much rather have the openness we have now than to any time. My sister always says she doesn't want to go back before flush toilets. Wherever in history, she never wants to go before <laughs> flush toilets. And I feel like I don't want to go back before um, same-sex marriage was legal, even despite all of the things that have changed. You know, so I, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, I do believe that the arc of history bends towards justice. And I mean that both in terms of human rights, but also in terms of um, sort of evolution, advancement of humanity, let's say. I think forward is better personally. Maybe that's because I'm American. I don't know. But um, 
But um, yeah, I you know I like those lists. I can't tell you how many I open, and every time it's about food, you know, like like I'm a sucker for the best recipe for something, even if I don't even care. It's like I want to try it and and see, you know. So, if it is the best right. recipe, I want to have weigh in is sort of right. what I want to do. And there's you know, Cooks Illustrated and Serious Eats sort of have made a whole world of that kind of exploration. And and to me, I think it's awesome to participate in that. The more, the merrier. So whether or not I need to know like seven things that look like Kim Kardashian's butt, I I, I don't know. But I might click on it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I don't think my sister. My who guess is, is like, you'd be more interested in Kim Kardashian if she was a cook. Yeah, me. And she had some great, amazing chocolate chip cookie <laughs> recipe. That is true. That is true. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think my sister, who's a psychologist, I'll quote her again. Um, you know, it's like technology still has humans on either end of it. We haven't Absolutely. really gotten rid of them yet. We haven't and gotten. We're not quite at no. the Terminator Matrix point yet, right. where the machines are running themselves. With all of our craziness and quirkiness and neuroses and humanity, and and it's still just the thing in between us. And you know, until we live in the her world or something, um, I think we'll. You know, as individuals, I mean, to get back to food, you know, we are responsible for how we handle it and deal and make the changes. And as much as we, on an individual basis, but even societally, who we vote for, what we do, what we choose to do. And so I, I think there's some agency and I think that um, we just need to continue to enlighten ourselves individually and then all the other stuff is just noise. A lot of noise. Mm. Lots and lots of noise. And in the food tech space, we I, I say it all the time, the technology ultimately is something that people are using to try to get themselves to a really great real life experience mm-hmm. with food, whether that's ordering food, making food, a recipe, getting a reservation, learning about something. It's all sort of just the path to the end of, of getting that real, the real life experience, mm-hmm. which I think is important when I think we need to worry when it's a means to a virtual experience. Totally. And even when you look at all, you know, like, to that very point, when you look at all the the excitement over things like Instacart and Blue Apron and all those. What are they doing? They're picking up stuff from somewhere or preparing it somewhere and bringing it to you in somewhere else, right? It's on either end is an object, a thing, you yes. know? And uh, I mean, I've been surprised lately. I, I think there's a lot of waste involved in those solutions, Absolutely. you know, there's boxes a lot of waste and shipping. Environmentally, yeah. No when doubt. I buy some carrots at the green market and take them home and cook them, it's not, the, I don't get a box and packaging and printing and, and, Whatever, and so I, I, I think I think we, you know, Americans are great students, and we're enthusiastic about change. And I think, we, like everything, will settle down and, and figure out what technology well, can do for us. It may or may not, and it's in perhaps a good theme for another show. I, I do believe that what you're buying when you subscribe to a lot of those services is you're buying time. Mm. You're buying time for yourself. Maybe it's you know the prep time or the shopping time yeah, for time for a, what? Like that's what? What well, do you do with that time? That's a very good question. Maybe you you know who knows? You know, different people use like, it for different I know, things. But, but I always hear. I think you're buying time. People aren't cooking because they don't have time, but they have time to be watch TV for nine hours or to what to you know. You, we, time is a prioritization process, and yes. you can prioritize the things you do with your time. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, to me, we sell time in a weird way that is, I think, uh, beyond the point. Time for what, you know? <laughs> well, it's the perfect end point because we are sadly out of, out time. of time. Wait, let me buy some. <laughs> out of time. Let me call Instacart and get some more time. At the end of every show, though, I always like to pe- ask people for a little piece of advice that listeners can use themselves. And 
You are a person who spent a huge amount of time traveling this year around the world on airplanes. Do you have any advice for people on how to use their technology to be better organized on the day-to-day, get more stuff done, deal with different time zones? Mm. You talked about Evernote. Yeah. How do you stay organized when you're working across two continents and on an airplane all the time? I could use some of that advice in my <laughs> well, one of my two things, borough life. Uh, one of the things I love about Evernote is you don't actually have to be organized because it searches, it sifts. And, and I'm, I'm a very organized person, but I organize in buckets. So I have a bucket and I stuff stuff in it that's not organized inside, but the bucket it holds something. And so to me, even for traveling, it's like, uh, you know, I, I, I have bags that I dump stuff into in my suitcase. So I... I categorize, I guess, is the way. That's the level of organization that I work at, not in the fine details. Nothing's alphabetized. It's just in there somewhere. And so, I, I mean, I think that's not a bad metaphor, honestly, for life. Like, I, you know, if you looked at my fridge or and freezer at home, which you have been in, I know, like <laughs> big containers say things like seeds, grains, whatever, you know. Salt. Yeah, salt, right. And so so to me, I think that, that you know, at least for my personal space, um, Putting things in categories, being open to changing them, not making so stringent, but being open. I mean, I think flow, I, I, we'll use a technology term, but it's also a philosophical term, Chiknamurti, flow, openness, like it comes and goes, not hanging on too tightly to things beyond sort of a neurotic need to grasp, I think um, helps you get through the day and helps you have new experiences and helps you get a new app and not care when you don't use it or, or, or love one when you do. So, I don't know, flow is my piece of advice to everybody. Flow? Buckets, Evernote, <laughs> and I mean, it sounds almost like you are, um, you know, calling out the Bruce Lee piece of advice, which is be like water. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> although water is pretty scarce these days, so I don't know. Flow. I want to thank Mitchell Davis, just back from the USA Pavilion at Expo Milan, and Heritage Radio Network host of Taste Matters for coming back to the shipping container and back to America. We missed you. We're glad to see you back home. Thank Jack Inslee for making the show happen, as always. And thank all the Heritage Radio Network listeners who donated to us over the course of the year and who are really big, big part of the reason why we're here. Without you helping the network sustain itself and without you listening it would just be me and mitchell (laughs) talking over pizza which wouldn't be bad come back and see us on monday this is tech bites thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.